Hey podcast and welcome to episode 9 of the MTB Fitness Podcast. Today I'm speaking to Alan Millway. Now Alan's a strength and conditioning coach who works with pro motocross and pro mountain bike athletes. You'll have heard of tons of them. Uh, people like the Athertons, those kind of people, like really, really big names. It's a brilliant interview this. I said to Alan at the end of the call, the one thing that really shines through is that every single question that I asked him, he just tries to answer it in as much detail as he can uh, and tries to just give everything he knows away for free really. You can really tell that he's super passionate about working with athletes and just about helping people, really. Really, really knowledgeable guy. He's been in the industry for years and years. Uh, In this this episode, sorry, we talk about tons. We talk about what separates a pro athlete from an amateur. We talk about the weaknesses that your everyday rider and athletes can have and how to correct them. We talk about advanced tests that he does with his pro riders and then also quite a few simple tests that people like me and you could simply do at home without having to have any advanced equipment uh, there's so much we talk about in this podcast i really really think you'll enjoy it this is episode nine of the mtb fitness podcast i really hope you enjoy it and i shall see you on the other side Hey podcast, so today I'm here with Alan Milway. Now Alan's the owner of MX Fitness. He's a fitness coach who focuses on working with pro mountain bikers and pro motocross athletes. He's worked with tons of teams, he works with the Athertons, which are who everybody knows. Uh, so Atherton Racing, Build Base Honda, Madison Saracen, RMJ Pro Academy, Giant Factory Racing, Team GB Training Camp, and tons more riders. You'll see them all over Instagram. Uh, so today, it's going to be great just picking Alan's brains, really, and seeing what we can take from the work he does with pro riders and apply that to your everyday rider. So cheers for coming on the podcast, Alan. Oh, pleasure to be here. Thanks for thanks for the invite. No problem. So uh, I was going to ask you before, but I thought, like you say, it was better, better getting on air. So how did you end up getting into this field like what what's your background did you start when you were young have you always wanted to work with pro athletes how how did you end up doing what you do um first and foremost i i just love bikes and that that's sort of where it all started i i grew up um i was really sporty growing up at school i was sort of your lad that you just couldn't wait to get out of, out of bed just for pe you know yeah. i just wanted to play football <laughs> and rugby and athletics and cricket and I, that's everything that i did and they were my focus my main focus um, but I, I was suffering from some, some knee pains, really. Um, I, I, I sort of, I don't exactly know what it was. It was pretty undiagnosed, but I had lots of problems when I was changing direction and, um, sort of having seen a doctor and whatever, he was like, look, cycling and swimming are the two best things that will really help. Now I was only, you know, I was probably 13 at the time and I was just getting into bikes and that was sort of my catalyst to really go for it with the, you know, with the push bikes um and i still didn't know what i wanted to do when i finished university in all honesty i studied sports science and i loved racing my bike um but after a conversation with a he's an ex-professional motocross rider who runs pedal hounds events a guy called paul hunt okay um you know we were literally just having a chat and and i love i was helping my friends and advising people on their fitness and whatever and he was like look there is a really good market here in motocross um and this would have been probably 2002, 2003. Um, and back then there was no market for mountain biking, you know, as much as if you'd have said to me, um, you know, do you want to be a pro mountain bike coach? I'd have just gone, you you know, yes, obviously, but there's just no way to make that happen. Um, I reckon there's a guy called Stefan Girard who was probably the only guy doing it. Now he was 
uh, Nico Vulios's coach and Caro's coach. He was like, uh, he's a French guy and he's helped uh, Greg Minar and a load of top pros, but he's probably the only guy. So there was no mountain bike opportunity, but there was a motocross opportunity. So that's, you know, that's where we started. And um, from then, uh, believe it or not, I was contacted by, you know, G Atherton. He was sort of one of the first pros to really contact me. And okay. um, yeah, I guess really the rest is history. You know, I, I it, he was interested in some some advice and some help and some training. Um, and it started off at a sort of some planning to start with to sort of structure his training. And yeah. then it just started to grow from there, to be honest. And, you know, and 15 years later, here we are. So were you one of the first fitness coaches then to work with pro mountain bikers? I think I was probably one of the first guys that would... Um, be a biker themselves if that makes sense to really yeah. understand the sports i think that um i my issue that i had was a lot of the guys i was that were coming to me had they were going into their gym and they were having a pt help them with their strength mm -hmm. and then they were going off and dealing with the stuff on the bike because they thought they knew what they needed to do on a push bike yeah and sort of never the two you know, never the twain shall meet. So sometimes they were they weren't progressing in their strength because they were just tired all the time because they were on their bike all the time, and yeah. and, and sort of vice versa. Um, so I can't think of. Um, I'm sure there, you know, there have been guys who've been working. There's some guys in the states that have been around for a long time as well, um, doing this. But my approach has always been to to try and show my understanding of the sport and the physical demands of that sport. And then from there, you know, structure, structure your training around that. Of course. It's really interesting as well about what you said, because I was, like I say, I'm 26. I was born in 92. So my kind of uh, experience of mountain biking has only been over the, probably the past 10 years. I think I got into it when I was a teenager, something like that. So yeah. it's really interesting actually seeing your input there on how it's changed so much, even from like when you were not really starting your career, but in uh, 2000 and, did you say 2002 then? Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I was racing. So I raced at pro elite level from probably 98, 99 to about okay. 2002. Right. So I, I was, I was at sort of a decent national level. Um, I never made it into World Cups, but I was sort of ranked top 10 senior, which is sort of the category under Pro Elite. So I, I was okay. And then I got bumped up into Pro Elite. But that's when I realized that um, I didn't really have the support network to really take it. You know, the guys were I was racing against um, some of the real top guys. And I remember at one race, I had Will Longdon behind me. who was like factory Rocky Mountain at the time. He's now the Madison team manager. Right. And I just remember thinking, God, you know what? I'm just not at that level you know in anything i do and i could just see and that was a real eye-opener really and that's when i decided that instead of trying to keep pushing on as a racer i'd sort of really focus on what i knew i was good at and that was understanding that the physical demands of the sport and therefore trying to train to be better for them so presumably you were applying it to your own training then were you so when you were racing were you training in the gym and using your expertise to improve your own fitness yeah, exactly that. So I did a sports science degree at the University of Birmingham, and that was um, that was a really physiology-led degree. Um, the this was way before you ever had strength and conditioning courses. Now, like if you want, generally, what you what you see is that um, guys will do 
maybe A-level PE, maybe even not A-level PE, they'll go in and do an undergraduate degree in sports science and then they'll do an MSc, a master's degree in strength and conditioning. And we're now at a stage where we've got an awful lot of very highly qualified, essentially gym instructors. You know, they're really well-educated guys and there's not that many job opportunities out there. A lot of them want to go into professional rugby because that's one sport that really does utilize S&C really well. Um, the EIS English Institute of Sport, they utilize S&C really well, but back then there wasn't that same structure. So I was using what I was learning in my degree and I just found it fascinating that it lit. I was like, you know what, that's exactly what I'm feeling on the bike or, you know, I was understanding how lactate sort of slowed muscle relaxation and made everything slow down and affected concentration and all of these things I could, that was why I was, I was so lucky because I could directly relate it to what I was doing on the bike. Of course. You know, and um, yeah, and I was helping for like my psychology, one of my psychology assignments was all based around a good friend of mine who was a racer. Okay. And, and that was brilliant to be able to actually, you know, implement exactly what I was learning with a, with a friend and just say, look, try this. You know, we, we looked at some visualization stuff. We looked at all sorts of different things to help him and then i could get his feedback and it makes the learning really quite easy you know it was brilliant that's really cool so while we're talking about that and while we're on the psychology point of view uh what kind of psychological tips is that the right way to put it could you give to your everyday rider so like you said there um it's funny because pretty much everyone i've had on the podcast so far and i'm massively into it myself always ends up talking about mindset and and the mental side of it not just the physical and even someone like yourself who's very much into obviously the snc side of it mindset comes up within the first 10 minutes of the chat yeah Um, so it sounds like you'd agree that it's a massive massive part of it I'd say that mindset um, and the ability to deliver your best when it matters is that is the defining feature of a good racer. Okay. And and you and you'll see this in any sport. Um, the guys who are the best racers are able to deliver their best when it really matters, and they actually want that pressure. And they it's it's a real cliched phrase, but they you know pressure is a privilege. That's what they consider. They're like you know what I like this. I like the fact that I need to deliver. Um, where the big difference between amateurs and professionals lies is an amateur rider might put in, say you do six practice runs over the weekend. You know, practice run four or five is absolutely banging and you're like god that was amazing but then it comes to the one where it make you know you have to make it count and mistakes come or you do something silly and you try and take a different line or you you, you try and ride at a very different speed and okay. i think that's the f- the first thing that i try and um, help people understand and especially with juniors is i want them to understand what is a fast run what makes a fast run so we do a fair bit of timing and we, we look at different line choices and we really consider what is a good run. And then once they've got that, I try and tell them, look, a race run shouldn't really be any different. It should be really cleaned up. It should be polished. But if you, you know, as soon as you hear the beeps, you try to do something completely different. You're, you're never going to replicate anything. And you're almost, you know, you're quite literally riding by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Um, and visualization makes a, a really good case so one technique that um you can practice it's a really cool thing to do if you if you race and it's a really good thing to practice is to actually visualize your race run with the stopwatch so if you um yeah so say 
we do it at World Cups and it's really cool to see because the better you get at visualization, the more in real time it becomes. So in theory, if I was racing, say I was racing a, a track that was two minutes 30 long. Okay. And my first run I did down that track was two minutes 30. If I sit down and I keep visualizing that run in my head against the stopwatch, in theory, it should take me two minutes 30 to get down it. Yeah. Now, people often get this really wrong and, and they're either really slow or really fast against the clock. Um, but that's just one way where if you practice the visualization and you get a feel for um, where, you know, left turn followed by right turn followed by outside line followed by inside line. Once you start to build up that pattern, it, it sort of, it helps the track become second nature and you, you're not trying to do anything wildly different. So you're actually thinking about the process of riding down that track and not, I've got to come first. I've got to come first. I've got to come first. Um, okay. You know, and that's, I had, um, uh, I won't mention his name, but he was a, uh, a World Cup winning junior mountain bike racer who was coming up into the senior category. And he really struggled in his first year as a senior because in his head, he had to be top 30. That's all he wanted to do. So instead of thinking about the, the process of what it takes to be, to get a good race run, he was thinking, this race run needs to get me top 30. Okay. And that, you know, you can see that all of a sudden you're thinking about the outcome and not the actual process of the race run. Um, and that was very stressful. He kept making mistakes. He'd blame himself. And if you can flip it around and, and help them think, you know what, if I get a clean run, I'm on the brakes here, I'm off the brakes there, I clear that jump, I go inside line there. Once you bolt those bits together, the outcome takes care of itself. So, yeah, I think that the psychology element is is vital. It's very important. So how do you get that balance then? I'm thinking of kind of your, well, me, I suppose, who doesn't do much racing and a lot of the riders listening to this, where the yeah. closest equivalent to racing on a weekly basis is probably Strava. Yes. <laughs> where, yeah, you know, you start yeah, at the yeah, top yeah. of the downhill, you're like, right, I'm going to go for it today. Um, so how do you strike the balance between getting yourself completely psyched up, you know, like pep talking yourself at the beginning, I'm going to smash it, I'm going to smash it, to the complete other side of it, which is staying too calm you know and you're not focused yeah. you're not concentrating how how do you get that happy medium is it just is it just practice or are there actual techniques that you can use to get yourself right right where you need to be mentally i'd say that nine times out of ten for an amateur rider a pep talk and a psych up at the beginning of any section or run that is critical will probably overstimulate you you're probably much okay. better to actually be relaxed oh, well. um yeah there is a there is a relationship and people have a different relationship between arousal and performance so um and you'll see this in pro, you'll see this in everything from professionals to amateurs but they'll be at the top of a world cup track there'll be some professionals that are almost zen like you know the greg minars the aaron gwins are really calm and very relaxed and then yeah. you've got the other side where you've got danny hart's a really good example where he's like He's talking to himself. He's puffing his cheeks out. He's almost like a lion, you know, he's yeah. like ready to go. And you're like, bloody hell, this guy's going to go bananas. <laughs> and, you know, you can see that those individuals, they know where their arousal level, where it needs to be. And But for most amateurs, once that arousal level increases, they're actually not focused on the job in hand. Yeah. They're just thinking about going wide open. Yeah. And um, I think what I'd say is I, I'd practice and, Strava is good for this is actually time yourself just go right let's see how this you know almost not think about the run just do a run find out what the time is then say I'm really going to go for it 
and you'll probably find it's not that much quicker because yeah. you're you're trying to go fast between the corners but you're not trying to go fast through the corners yeah and a and, lot of sorry to interrupt, but a lot of speed no. is about staying relaxed, isn't it? And letting the bike work as best you can. And a lot of the time, I know I found with my own riding, when you're really attacking it and really like going for it, you find that you tense up and then the bike just doesn't end up working as well because you're so tight on the bike. Yeah, exactly that. And and it really is trying to get that flow and, and that rhythm. And you'll find that that trying to be relaxed and not not considering it's the ability to basically say, this is one more run. I'm going to do this as well as I can and, and buy it as well as I can. I mean, it's mistake-free as possible. And yeah. if, you're, if you're focused on, you're sort of staying in the present, so you're not thinking about the next corner or the next corner or the next corner. Because again, another problem that amateurs find is if you've got a track that's say two minutes long, if someone does the first minute really well, in their heads, they're like, right, all I need to do is get to the bottom in one piece and I've had a really good run. But yeah unfortunately it's such a negative outlook because they've only done half the track well so half the track's really good and then they stiffen up and bobble their way through the bottom cross the line and they're like brilliant i didn't make a mistake that was a really good run when actually it wasn't the first 30 you know first minute was brilliant but then they they were more worried about the results than they were about each individual corner so staying in the present and focusing on what's actually you know ahead of you um immediately is a really good way to look at it so do you use talking about staying in the present which i agree is completely a skill and i've always found yeah. as i'm sure you will your best workouts and your better ride best rides are always when you're purely focusing on what you're doing right now yeah. do you uh, get your athletes to do any meditation or anything like that um i i don't think we'd necessarily call it meditation but i think what we'd say is that it would be reviewing what they've done and at a world cup we try and come up with a um so when it comes to preparing for a race run, the race run starts for us probably an hour and a half before the, you know, the beeps. Okay. And now it will be sort of a, I'll write a warm up schedule for them and we'll discuss it when they need to be back at the truck, when they need to start getting their kit on, when they need to start doing their like various mobility drills or getting on the turbo or all these, you know, components. And as part of that, it's going through the race run in your head. So I actually try and, try and get them to switch off from it and then switch back on to it and otherwise you can become quite nervous if all you're doing is thinking about the race and thinking about the track you're trying to control something that you can't really control you know and it just sort of eats away at you but if you can go away from the truck and put your feet up and you know watch some of the junior racing or whatever and just relax with your mates and then come back to the truck and then literally turn on go right i'm on now this is yeah. work um it's not as it's not as fatiguing um because it you'll you'll see people if they're at a race or if they're in a stressful situation you almost become quite tired don't you and quite lethargic and you, yeah. you know you might even catch yourself yawning and you think to yourself what is going on here <laughs> and it's that body's response is the way the nervous system works is to sort of go down into this it's literally a shutdown mode to protect vital organs that's it you know it's and, and unless you sort of go right i've actually got to do something here and that's where a warm up so important is to get you going right i've got to deliver and now yeah. i'm you know i'm in control of this process minute by minute almost okay so taking that 
to kind of your everyday rider, if we picture Billy, who's just worked nine till five, he's got yeah. home from work and he's about to get ready to go for a ride. So one tip that I'll constantly give to people in that situation is to take 10 minutes to, assuming it's not too late in the evening, to sit down, have a coffee, pop some riding videos on. Then while they're getting into the riding gear, get ready. And then with a riding video on or with some music that gets you going, have a bit of a warm up. So do, you know, some squats, some press ups, just try and move around yeah. and get your body language going a bit just to, just to wake you up really and get yourself in the zone a bit i think a mistake that some people will make will be to get in put your riding gear on and then head straight out and you've almost not decompressed from the stress of work or you might still feel sluggish and tired and for somebody in that situation what would you say is a good way to spend 10 to 15 minutes almost in that transition from getting home from work to going for a ride I'll tell you, it's, it's a really good point you made there is that um, you'll see it in the gym as well, won't you? People will sort yeah. of dump the gym bag straight in and try and get cracking and they almost, they, they, they don't, they're not, they haven't changed their environment, they haven't prepared for the new environment they're in. Yeah. Um, one thing I quite like to do is almost consider um, if you're lucky enough to ride from your door, then brilliant. If you're not and you've got to chuck the bike in the, in the back of the car or the back of the van, I consider actually where you park because often people will park at the very bottom of the trail, pull their bike out, and then they're either straight into a big steep uphill or they're straight into something technical. Yeah. And they've not had any preparation, any warm-up or anything. But if you consider, right, you know what, let's park 10 minutes away from the start of the, you know, the real good stuff. You can then spend that 10, 15 minutes. You can be kitted up. You can be excited about the ride. You can be looking forward to it. But actually, you're, you're going through quite a nice warm-up process. You're forgetting work. You're thinking about what's coming up. You're thinking about how hard you're going or the gearing you're in. And that makes a nice difference to the start of the ride. And you can yeah. sort of get yourself prepared. And the same when you finished. Again, you know, nine times out of the ten, you'll finish a really steep or fast finish to a run. And there's the van or there's the car. And you just chuck the bike in the back and off you go but you've not really cooled down at all. You might be full of lactate because you've had a big sprint to the finish. And, you know, that, that sort of soreness and fatigue does knock on. But if you've parked 10, 15 minutes away, you can then decompress, cool yourself down, back into the, you know, back to the car and, and off you go. And I, I, I'm lucky where I live. It's pretty much, it's 15 minutes on my normal bike and about seven minutes on the e-bike to the, yeah. to the trails. And I deliberately don't drive to the trails because it's quite easy. I could chuck the bike in the van and I'll be straight to the bottom of the downhills. But I deliberately ride from home, have the music on, think about what I'm about to do. Which trails am I going to ride? Am I going to focus on one track or am I going to try and do a big loop? And, you know, I think that sets you up quite nicely and, and can stop some of the silly injuries that happen on that first run. Yeah, I found it exactly the same. So beginning of, I think, will it have been September? September last year, something like that, I got a car that rather than me having to put the bike rack on, it's just permanently on the roof now. So whenever I want to go yeah. riding, I can shove the bike on. It's really easy. And I made yeah. that exact same mistake the first few times I was going out riding. I was thinking, right, sweet. I can start with a downhill rather than having to yeah, start with a massive exactly. climb. Yeah. And I hated it because you're just yeah. jumping straight into the downhill and you're cold. You're not in the right mindset. You're thinking about other things. And like, A, I didn't enjoy the downhills the same, but I was nowhere near as fast or loose or relaxed. So I, I agree. I think that's a great advice that taking... Yeah taking that 10 minutes to just chill on your way to the, on the way to the first downhill or on the way to the first big climb and then gradually build it up. And that's really good advice. Yeah, I think that that's good. And, and I think the same does link with the gym as well. When, when guys come and see me in the gym, mm. I mean, that's where 
like I'll give them a foam roller, I'll give them a mat, I'll give them a hockey ball, and then I'll go over, you know, I'll give them a couple of minutes, and I'll be like, so how you doing? You know, what? how, how are we getting on? What's tight? What's sore? How's your day been? How's your week been? How's the travel? And then I'll put them into an exercise that's quite, maybe quite tricky, but not hard. So maybe an overhead squat or maybe a four point kneeling exercise or maybe something that where there's a bit of a balance component because there's no way that you can be thinking about what you have for breakfast or how bad the m6 was when you're trying to stabilize everything because you've got to be in the moment and if you bring an exercise like that quite early on into the session or into the warm-up it sort of focuses someone right i'm in the gym now i've got to work hard i can't be daydreaming about something else yeah. And I found that's quite, I've, I've actually rejigged the way I do my sessions based on that because most people travel to me and I felt as though actually, you know, some people can bring in like baggage with them, what they're thinking or how bad the journey was, or some people have been running late and they're stressed because they're like, I'm late. I'm like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. You know, yeah. you're here now. We've got plenty of time. And I, I, I always try and build that time in. Um, yeah. And I think that helps you know, if you're going to the gym after work, just to try and go, right, I'm not at work anymore. I'm in the gym. What's my, t- what's my goal from the gym? What do I know I'm weak at? And and then, then you can have a really good, you know, hour, hour and a half or whatever it is. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think that's, yeah, great advice. So on that note, it's a very basic question for people. Uh, I'm massively all for it. How important is it for your everyday rider to lift weights? Oh, wow you're asking a strength and conditioning coach so i'm obviously going to give you yeah. <laughs> uh, an answer to this. I, it was quite funny i heard um just before i answer i heard a conversation between a strength and conditioning coach and a physiotherapist and they were talking about an endurance athlete and uh the physio was talking about a you know a soreness that the endurance athlete was feeling and the coach was like they just need to be stronger and i had a right laugh and they all knew they were just like yeah we, we all want someone to be stronger but ultimately i think that um strength is very important but i think that it's i need to really define strength because i'm not saying you need to put as much weight on the bar as possible um i i I think it's movement competency so that to me is the most important thing and generally movement competency improves with some loading so your normal patterns we all lunge hinge squat push pull rotate brace ourselves to stop rotation all of those movements happen in daily life um in sport in cycling and to improve those we need to improve the strength and the coordination of that movement so i i'm a big fan of um structured loading um so we we, there's always progression and generally if you don't have a focus on loading you don't progress and i've seen it in amateurs and i've seen it in professionals and you know i'll ask them do you squat for example just to pull the easiest exercise out they're like yeah yeah i squat and i said well what do you squat no what do you mean i'm like well tell me what you squat and they can't really give me a number they can't really give me an answer they can tell me they squat and to me that just shows there's been no progression yeah there's been nothing there's been no target and i think some people may criticize me for being overly focused on the numbers and I've, I understand that and I'm not trying to turn you into a powerlifter or try to turn you into a two and a half times body weight squat. But what I'm trying to say is if, if you're squatting 
and you can't tell me what's hard, what's easy. You know, how does 100 kilos feel on your back? If you're like, oh, I've got no idea, then, you know, we need to have that potentially as a target or have something for you to work towards. So to me, um, it's not just strength. It's also understanding where you're good and where you're not so good. So okay. some people, you know, I, I've got plenty of people that I've seen are really good at pulling. So mountain bikers and motocross riders seem mm. to be good at pulling, okay? But they're quite weak at pushing. And they'll tell you that they don't need to push or there's no problem. But if you were to talk through any of their mechanisms for crashing, it will probably, because they collapsed over the front of the bike and got spat over the front. Yeah. So if Which you say, well, pressing. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if you can say, look, guys, if we can improve your pressing strength, then potentially you'll be able to ride out an otherwise you know crashing situation and if you can sell it to them like that then they're like okay i understand why we're doing x y and z and then they can potentially buy into it because ultimately if if, if you're being asked to do something you don't believe and you're like this is rubbish yeah you, you know you're not going to give your best you're probably not going to think your coach knows what he's on about and you're never going to get any better but if there's an explanation for it and you can see a target down the line you will see it on the bike you know it's you really will see it in your control on the bike. Yeah. So this is something that I've talked loads about. So I've got tons of opinions that are very similar to yours. Um, I'd be interested to hear how you answer it. It's in that vein. What do you say to the person that says you just need to ride your bike to get fitter, to get faster? You don't need to do anything else, only ride your bike. And I do have strong views on it, but I'd like to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if, if I ride my bike and I want to get better at riding my bike, I need to push the limit of my bike riding okay so if you say to me right alan all you need to do if i go to one of my test tracks for example i'll go to one of the test tracks i use around here and you know if, if your opinion, advice to me was if you want to get better on that test track all you need to do is ride that track fine no problem however there'll be two or three critical parts on that track where i'm at my absolute limit and if i go any further i'm going to have a, an accident and there will be very much a skill element to that but i it could be that I'm fatigued at the bottom of a track and that's limiting my ability to ride. Or it could be I've had to land quite a big drop or I've tried to have to control the bike over something quite rough. So if all you're doing to get better is riding the bike, you're having to put yourself at the 100% element of risk and um, skill demand to try and get an improvement. Okay, And if you do that all the time and you stay on your bike, then yes, you will get improvements and of course you'll get better. Where fitness training and strength training come in is they let you take those weaker links and improve those in a safe environment really maximize those improvements and then when you go back to the bike you will actually find that you'll be able to push the bike that bit further in a safer manner and that really is my argument to this yeah. and you see it on motorbike again motocross is a really interesting one because it's very much the same these guys are like let's just ride motos let's just ride motos um that's fine but if you're doing a 30 minute moto and you're knackered and you're trying to do a one minute 30 lap time the limitation to that one minute 30 lap time is no longer your skill it's your fitness so to only work on your fitness on the motocross bike is a risky undertaking but yeah. if you were to work on your fitness in a safe environment, in an environment where you're not potentially going to get hurled into a tree or a rock or whatever, then you can, you know, you can make an improvement and go back into this environment and test the improvements. Yeah. So, 
yeah, that's 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 my standpoint. I, what's your thoughts on it? I completely agree with you. Yeah, we have the yeah. same view. I think the stronger that you can get off the bike, the stronger you're going to be on the bike. And I think as well, often, uh, my dad's a good example. My dad's a mountain biker, but he, no matter how many times I tell him, he doesn't do any training off the bike, um, which is cool. He's not going to listen <laughs> to his son. <laughs> um, but you can see on him, we did a coaching day together where I took him to a skills coach and I went with him and kind of like went along for the day. Uh, and the coach was trying to teach him how to get his hips out to the side on the bike mm. to corner. So he's like, right, drop that outside foot and then just push your hip like laterally outwards. Yeah. He just physically couldn't do it because he's got a desk job he's done it for 30 years all he ever does is move forward and backwards like he he just has no idea how to move his hips outwards so obviously when the coach was then trying to teach him how to corner and teaching him to get his hips out and twist his chest and whatnot he he just physically couldn't do it so I think for someone like that it'd be much easier for my dad and for everybody listening who struggles with that to learn those kind of movements in the gym because you can see yourself in the mirror, you can see where you're going wrong. If you've got a coach with you, even better, because he can push you into the right position. Yeah. And I think often, I mean, like you, this is just one of the reasons, often people don't know how to get into the positions they need to be getting into on the bike. And I think it's so much easier to learn it in the gym, um, as well as everything else you've said, really. So, yeah, we, we, yeah. we both have the same view. Yeah, this is it, isn't it? It's trying to put someone in an environment where they can focus on what they need to improve on, as opposed to this sort of um, massive melting pot of different skills and elements and, uh, you know, inconsistencies. Um, So, yeah, I I think it's it doesn't need to overrule the bike. And I think really that's what people are actually saying. What people are actually saying by that comment is surely I need to be riding my bike to get better on my bike. And And of course you do. Exactly. No one's saying anything different. They're just saying instead of, you know, sitting in front of the TV on those four nights where you're not riding your bike, if you actually did something really constructive, the next time you go back, you know, go back onto your bike, you will have made an improvement. Yeah. I totally agree. It's not about saying, right, you ride twice a week, you need to swap one of those rides out for a yeah. gym session yeah, or for a yeah, home exactly. session. Like, like don't yeah. do that. But yeah, you're right. Like, we all lie until 7am one day where you could have been up at 6 or, or on a yeah. weekend, you lie until 9 when you could have gone to the gym at 7 or there's, like you say, TV time. Uh, you're cooking a meal for half an hour or you're waiting for something to happen. You can. There's always somewhere to fit in weight training at times when you wouldn't be training or well, you wouldn't be riding, sorry, so it's just extra. Definitely. Yeah. So, where do you mentioned e-bikes before? Now, I also have strong views on e-bikes. In the these are uh, it's something that I think it's getting better personally. So, you may agree. I think that when e-bikes first came on the scene, they got tons and tons and tons of hate, and I definitely think they're getting less hate, which I think is good. I've put out quite a few Facebook posts and Instagram posts, and they all do really well, basically defending e-bikes and e-bike riders. Uh, what are your views on e-bikes? Uh, I'm a, I'm quite a fan of e-bikes. I really am. Um, so I I was introduced properly to e-bikes through one of my pro athletes, and I think that's quite an interesting, you know, in sort of start. Yeah, exactly. Interesting start point. So um, one of my pro riders, he was using them quite a lot, and as we were programming, I was miss basically I was getting my programming wrong because I was considering them to be a complete recovery ride. So I was saying, oh, you're taking your e-bike out, so it's okay. an easy ride. And I, I remember a few comments after a couple of weeks of this training block. And he's like, you know what, man, I'm, I'm toast. You need to come out on an e-bike with me because you need to understand what we're doing on these things. And so 
I was like, I was quite happy to take up the invitation. I was like, that sounds like a great idea. And so we, I borrowed an e-bike and we both went out and we did, we did two hours riding. So that's pretty much the limit of the battery, absolutely flat out. And by flat out, I mean, I've never ridden so hard in my life. <laughs> and, you know, we, we did in this sort of riding area down south, we, we did every single downhill. There's probably seven or eight trails. And I think we did them all twice. Wow. And he said, you normally do four to six of them in a ride. And yeah. we'd done 16 to 17. Yeah. And it, the volume of quality downhill technical riding was through the roof. And we were able to reach destinations, you know, twice as fast. So from that point of view, that really opened my eyes. And I was like, wow, this is not what I expected. And it was a really good learning experience for me. And I, I was really grateful for that, that, you know, learning, if you know yeah. what I mean. I was like, wow, this is a really interesting thing. And so I got in touch. Um, I've got a really good relationship with Scott Bikes and Scott sponsored me with bikes. And um, they were really good. They sent me an e-bike to use and to, to try and get a feel for and i learned so much from being on the you know on this bike because you can control the pace at which you ride yeah. so it's i've seen guys in their late 40s early 50s or i've got a friend of mine who runs a bike shop in birmingham who's had a really bad he's got really bad knees cruciate ligament damage meniscus tears everything is just a wreck and he wasn't able to deliver the power necessary to get up a steep hill. But on an e-bike, all of a sudden, he's back on his bike. Yeah. So I, I think it does really cover a big spectrum. Um, and in terms of skills development, the interesting thing on an e-bike is um, because of the weight of them, they carry quite a lot more momentum. and mm -hmm. uh, They corner really well because of where that weight is. It's quite low down. But there is a transfer you know, you, if you ride your e-bike well, it's not like riding a completely different bike around that corner. It yeah. will corner. Um, and from that point of view, I don't think I'll ever replace a normal bike with it because yeah. there is a different feeling. And I, I still prefer that sort of rawness of riding a self-propelled bike, you know, 100% self-propelled. Yeah. But in this day and age, honestly, there'll be times where people will decide not to ride their bike because potentially they won't be able to do much or it's dark and they won't get very far etc etc yeah and the e-bike just takes away a lot of those uh those question marks so i'm very grateful i'm very grateful to ride this you know the genius it's great yeah we have such similar views on that you're exactly right i think <laughs> i'm the same in that i love going out and thrashing like obviously i've got a fitness company like yourself so you're yeah. massively into the fitness side of it i love yeah. thrashing myself on the bike um, and i wouldn't ever want to only or i don't think at this point in my life i would only want to have an e-bike but i could definitely see having one in my you know in my arsenal to be able to take out for a quick spin because like I say if you do a quick hour riding you could do three or four downhills in that hour rather than just one maybe two um, and i think as well the applied to so many different people you mentioned a few types yourself but you'll have some groups of friends who some members of that group will be able to ride four times a week and be really yeah, fit. exactly yeah, and then yeah. johnny who can only ride once a week he's no way in hell he's going to be able to keep up with them for a ride whereas if he's on an e-bike he could keep up with them for you know all day for a good quick two-hour ride with them and and feel like he's right at the front of the pack um, and i think like you say if you've got injuries or heart conditions or there's a few people who message me on my page who uh are, like just rehabbing through cancer and they're just off the back wow. of that and starting wow. out on an e-bike so yeah 
I think when people say, oh, they're for the lazy, I think it's really, really short-sighted. Uh, and I do think people's views are getting better from this. Like, I think more people are having mine and your sort of view that they're great for all ranges of people, from your pro athletes like you wait, with, that you work with, right through to the other side of it, to, you know, people coming over or going through cancer, and it means that you can still get out riding. Yeah, exactly that. And I think what's really interesting is is it's a classic case of, the people who are hating on it have never ridden one. They don't own yeah. one. And, you know, will have, will have grown up with these sorts of opinions as you go through school where people are hating on you for certain things because they don't understand it. And yeah. you like, you take it quite personally, like, hang on a sec, mate. But you don't realize that it's, it's on them, to be honest with you. If they, yeah. you know, it's on them. I mean, um, I, it's once you understand that you can put it in eco mode, and if you put the bike in eco mode, mm-hmm. it just rides like a normal mountain bike. You know, it's just like a normal bike and you put it in turbo mode and your wheel spin up a hill and, yeah. and you've got the full spectrum there. So, um, yeah, I, I, I generally see them as positive. I think the only the only negative that I see to them and I do consider this have a concern about this is you. I've got to be careful how I phrase this. So there are people who potentially would never ride a mountain bike because of the effort required and because of the skill component to it that potentially might come into the sport and go you know what this looks like fun this is a good way to spend seven grand i'll buy a really fancy bike and then they'll take themselves to a place where they they really shouldn't be in terms of the you know they'll find themselves in a very tricky downhill because they've been able to access it far too easily or they've suddenly found that you know let's go here or there to ride the bike and it is opening up mountain bikes to potentially not mountain bikers and uh, I don't, that's not derogatory. I don't mean that in a negative way No, 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 way I get it. I understand. But, you know, I, my concern is, like, consider my dad, for example. He's not going to ever want to go for a ride with me on a normal mountain bike. But yeah. he might say, Alan, if I get an e-bike, I can come riding with you. Now, I know, no, you can't. You can come on a nice, easy trail with me. But if you come up to the top of the hill with me, and then we've got to get back down the other side, there is a technical demand to that. And yeah. I think that's my concern is that, um, it can open up it can sort of short track people to some quite difficult terrain yeah. and that I, i'm i my only concern is that people can end up hurting themselves because they're like you know what i can keep up with you young buck now on the way up therefore i'll be able to keep up with you on the way back down again yeah and... yeah that's a good point and often if you're on a technical climb on your normal mountain bike you almost have the barriers to entry if you're going on a technical climb you'll hit roots and you won't be able to get over yeah, them exactly. but with an e-bike i've been on one myself as well so not the light you can power yeah. through a lot of those things can't you yeah i think that's a legitimate concern yeah um and I think, I imagine as I get more and more popular and there's more podcasts like this and more articles go out from people like yourself and from me who talk about those concerns, I think it's just about getting getting that out there, isn't it? So that when somebody buys an e-bike and they've never ridden a mountain bike before, it's about understanding. It'd be like putting an amateur at the top of the Fort William World Cup, wouldn't it? That's like, exactly it. And <laughs> I, I, mean, I get your point. Yeah, and it's nothing new because we see it in skiing all the time, don't we? Everyone's gone on skiing on holiday. They're like, I've never been skiing before, but I want to ride, I want to ski a black run by the end of the week. Yeah. You know, and they can access it on the chairlift like anyone else can. And it's that sort of self-discipline and that sort of self-awareness that am yeah. I actually skilled enough for this? And, yeah. you know, I've you told imagine- this story yeah. a few times. It's kind of relevant. Again, a bit off topic. Sorry, go on. No, no, go on. No, no, it just cut out. So, yeah, you're going to tell me a story. 
Um, I was going to say, when I got back into mountain biking the second time, so I was explaining before we jumped on the podcast, I used to ride for two or three years, then stopped for three, four years, and then got back into it. And as yeah. I was getting back into it, because I'm dead competitive, I was like, <laughs> right, that's it, I'm going to be as fast as I can. So there's a, uh, do you know where uh, Jack Redding, the downhiller? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so he lives locally to me, like two miles away, so he's got all the Strava comms around here. So I was like, right, <laughs> I'll just aim to get as close as I can to that. <laughs> and I'll throw myself down the steepest downhills and I just yeah. literally think like fake it till you make it I'm going to pedal as hard as I can yeah. and then I'll probably get to the bottom and I was riding by the skin of my teeth like falling off a good four times every ride and then good, about yeah. four months in it culminated with me coming off doing my ankle in and being on crutches for uh, for about like a couple of months and I was like yeah you know what maybe fake it till you make it isn't the right way Yeah. Um, and then I went right back to basics then and it was what you've said there in like it was all that self-discipline of just gradually building up the speed, learning the technique, um, and then getting faster and faster and faster. And now I'm much faster than I was then on the bike, but in a safe manner. Um, and it is having that self-discipline, or it was for me then, to just gradually build it up. Yeah, that's it. And I think with mountain biking, because you know, those of us who've been in the sport a little while, you sort of have progressed and you've built the trails, or you might have modified a trail, or mm. you've accessed something that is not, it's sort of off the beaten track a little bit. And now all of a sudden, it's becoming much more accessible and it's just, you know, that that's my only concern is people hurting themselves yeah. because I often, a large part of my job is helping people rehab from injury and, yeah. you know, it's uh, injury doesn't discriminate whether you're old or young or skilled or unskilled, you know, you can still hurt yourself. Of course, yeah. So, so I'd like to talk a bit about testing now, if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so what kind of testing do you do? Well, it's kind of in two parts, I suppose, this question. What kind of testing do you do with your pro riders? And then taking it to the sort of second step, what are some tests that your everyday rider who isn't going to go in and do a VO2 max test and a lactate threshold test and all that are they yeah. unlikely to? What kind of tests then they, can they do that are really simple? That's a, that's a question. That's you, know, a question. <laughs> you know, when you asked me earlier in the week for some preparation, that might be one to send you. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if we start, let's start with the pros. Um, so from a pro's point of view, I've, I've, I'm really lucky in terms of the facilities I've got. So we've got uh, a performance lab at the University of Birmingham. We've got a very well-specced uh, performance gym that's sort of an invite-only professional, amateur, sports scholar, athlete gym. And in those gyms, we have um, some really useful equipment that allows me to gather a lot of data. And from a professional athlete's point of view, these guys want to know, am I getting better? Okay, so that's the long and the short of it. Am I actually improving? Now, you can, um, if you're dealing with a pro who's training four, five, six times a week, they're on their bike an awful lot, the, the performance improvements are relatively small as a percentage, okay? If I see... I, I was seeing 10 to 12% improvements over a block of four weeks. And I thought that was a big improvement. I was like, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, and in the same time frame, if I was to take an amateur who had done little to no training, I've had a 35% improvement over six weeks. Right. So you can see that an amateur is way lower down in their sort of potential for performance. Yeah. Um, so with a pro, you want to find out, am I training in the right way? Have I got the, the training intensities right? Have I got the strength loads right? So I will have them on a, um, a lab bike or a watt bike, and I will measure power output. I will take blood from them and work out where their two millimole, their four millimole lactate accumulation, where their training zones are, measure their heart rate. 
and I may give them all of that data or I may give them the key numbers. It just okay. depends on the athlete. Some athletes want to know everything. Some athletes are like, I don't care. Just tell me, <laughs> just tell <laughs> me what I need that. to do. Yeah. yeah. So that's fine. So that's in the lab. So essentially I'm trying to work out where they're at, train them, and then have we made a, an improvement? And then I can test them again. Um, in the gym, you want to, just like I was talking about earlier, I'm not necessarily trying to make anyone a powerlifter. I'm actually trying to make them more powerful um, by more powerful, I really link it in terms of power to weight. So I want to monitor their body weight. I want to see, are we getting a strength improvement? Are we getting a power improvement? So my rate of force development, is that improving? And also, am I getting a balance between my left side and my right side? So a lot of pro guys might have had shoulder injuries, ankle injuries, knee injuries. And I've had, well, the athletes I got this year, we've had two guys who've had ACL uh, reconstructions. I've had shoulder dislocation, thumb dislocation, ligament tear. Um, also, I could go. I could go on. Okay, <laughs> so we want to make sure left and right side is balanced. So I'll look at not just the load on the bar, but also um, some other tests such as a counter movement jump. Um, that's quite an easy test to see essentially how high can you jump from the floor, okay. um, because that's a really good indicator of power output. Okay, so it's not specific for a bike whatsoever. However, if you were training that pattern, that triple extension pattern, if we train that, we are likely to see an improvement on the jump mat. And that shows that neurally and in terms of a muscular development point of view, I am moving forwards. Yeah. Um, I've also got a piece of kit called a, a gym aware. That's a great piece of kit where it's essentially a tether that goes. So, yeah, it's really useful. And what it shows is instead of just lifting the heaviest weight, I can actually strap it to. Um, so one test we do that's quite fun and is really useful is we put a weightlifting belt on and we strap the gym aware to the weightlifting belt and we do a chin up to see how fast we can do one chin up. OK, so we'll then go away and we'll load chin ups. Now, some of these lads, I mean, as a test, if you want to test one of my boys can do he can hang 42 and a half kilos from his weightlifting belt and nice. then do a chin up. Right. Okay. So that, yeah. And that's from a dead hang as well. So we're not necessarily trying to train him to lift the heaviest weight on a chin up unless it's improving the speed at which he can do a chin up because yeah. it's that rate of force development. Um, and we do the same in a push movement as well. So I can strap it to the barbell and actually get him to throw the barbell. And we can show how fast that barbell is traveling. Okay. So these are quite in-depth tests. And I've got a big, I've got loads of different tests that I take and monitor and balance left to right. And, you know, from a pro athlete's point of view, I think it's quite motivating to come back. Yeah. You know, once a month, once every six weeks, right. What's changed? Am I going to beat the other lads? I had four in the other day last week and it was brilliant. It was the best session we've had for ages. <laughs> you know, everyone's pushing themselves. Each athlete's got their own strength or weakness and that's great but from an amateur point of view like you were saying like how are we going to relate this to the amateur and i think there's some really basic exercises that you can do to get your head around where you're at yeah. um so on the bike there's a couple of things you can do if you've got access to a watt bike that's really useful um or access to something to give you a power output because then you can monitor the work done yeah. Now, if you had access to a watt bike, there's two tests that I think are really easy to do. One is a, um, a maximum power output. So you literally want to see how much power can I, excuse me, can I generate? 
Um, and you can work that out as a watts per kilo. So you can divide that figure by your body weight, that gives you a number, and then you can benchmark that as, is this improving? And yeah. sometimes people get stronger, but they put on a lot of weight, that figure doesn't change. So ultimately you want to go, well, if I lost five kilos, I don't need to get any stronger. This number's going to go up. Yeah. Um, another one that I think is really good is there's a, there's a couple of different tests. There's an FTP test, which I could go into a lot of depth about my concerns on FTP um, because it actually sits you quite high in your lactate accumulation. Okay. And without getting too in depth, because some guys listen to this, like what the hell is this going about? Uh, <laughs> It essentially means it can be tempting to work too hard in your training yeah. and therefore not get the improvements that you need. Because to get better aerobically, you don't want a load of lactate in your blood because oh, okay. it, it becomes an anaerobic exercise. And I would say for most amateur athletes, the first thing they need to do is improve their aerobic conditioning. Yeah. So getting out and doing some longer, steadier state work in addition to the short, sharp stuff will be really good. Yeah. Um, but you can, you can do an FTP test on the Watt bike, or you can do a test I quite like, which is a five minute max power. So it's, it's a dirty test. You don't want to do it very often. But <laughs> Get some loud go, music up. Yeah, exactly. You go as hard as you can for five minutes. And the thing is with that duration is it sort of self-selects the pace. You can't sprint for five yeah. minutes. It's just impossible. And once you've got a power output there, you can actually work in some intervals at a percentage of that power output. And yeah. then you can go and train again. So there are two easy ones you can do on a watt bike. Um, in terms of the gym, I think it's really useful to, to assess, is my left limb similar to my right limb? Have I got a deficit left to right? Um, I see it a lot with people who've had an injury that hasn't been fully rehabbed. I see it from someone who's got poor posture from the job they do. They've got one side that's yeah. far more dominant than the other. Um, so simple things, calf raises. How many calf raises you can, can you do on your left leg? How many calf raises can you do on your right leg? That's a good if, test. You know, if there's more than 15% difference, why? You know, we want to know why. Is there an underlying reason? And also, if you can't get to 25 calf raises, you need to get 25 calf raises okay <laughs> you know because you haven't got that robustness you haven't got that stiffness you, you're going to struggle as you get tired in terms of maintaining posture um another really interesting one is to compare your push and your pull like we referenced earlier you know quite often people are better at one than the other um one thing i like to do is an inverted row or a supine pull so essentially set up a imagine you're setting up a bench press you just take the bench out of the way completely and you lie down on the floor where the bench would be, reach your arms up towards the bar, put your feet flat on the floor and sort of knees at 90 degrees. So you form a, like a hip bridge and then pull your chest up to that bar, try and touch the bar, do as many reps as you possibly can. Um, that is really interesting because a lot of people are very lap dominant, so they can't maintain this sort of elbows pulling directly down to the floor. They end up sort of curling themselves around the bar so yeah. you can see sort of where people are strong and weak, but also you can get a, a number. Can we get your chest to touch the bar? Have you got that shoulder mobility and that thoracic mobility to do that? Um, and if you can touch the bar, how many reps can you do? Yeah. Um, and as a, a nice comparison, we can go back to the oldest exercise in the book and go back to your PE and just do some press-ups, put a little cone on the floor. How many press-ups can we do? Proper, legit, chest to this, you know, chest to sort of a, a monitored point, a cone on the floor, 
and let's compare them. Is there a difference in that ratio? Um, I would say that if you also get someone to lunge walk towards a mirror, turn around, lunge walk back, you'll find that you may see that one side is much more dominant than the other. One knee wants to roll in and not the other. All of these things just give somebody a bit of a um, an insight into where they are yeah, as an and athlete. I bet 99% of the people listening to this, I imagine, have never and don't do any testing at all. So I think definitely those who've got a what what bike, those tests would be amazing. But I think those yeah. latter ones there that you can do anywhere would be really, really good to do. <laughs> and I think one thing, if you've not got a coach working with you, you could probably add to those as well, would be to get a mate to film you doing it. So what you were saying about the walking yeah, lunges, I can picture in particular, absolutely. if your mate films you doing it and you watch it, you'd be like, Jesus Christ, look how much my left knee drops yeah. in compared yeah, to my right and look yeah. how much I'm leaning and. That, exactly and i think you can add an overhead squat to that quite nicely as well if you hold a just yeah. a broom handle above your head and if you've got someone to film you you might find that your left knee everything spins around to compensate or you might find that you haven't got that sort of uh you can't maintain a nice flat back so actually the the, the broom handle instead of staying over your head like falls forward yeah. um and in terms if you want to uh, if you haven't access to a walk bike, one test that's really good is to find, this is where Strava does come in quite nicely. Find a hill that is about five minutes long. Find a section that is about five minutes long and, and set, set a benchmark, you know, go yeah. for it. Let's see what you can do and then go away for four weeks. Don't do it every single time. And that's <laughs> one of the big problems I find with things like Strava is people, they turn a training ride into a, into a race. So yeah. every single session is balls to the wall. And you quite often find that you don't, well, we both know in a gym situation, if you just tried to max bench press every session, your max yeah. bench won't go up. You need to actually do more work and then revisit that max effort, more yeah. work, revisit that max. And it's the same on the bike. If you find a section, uphill or downhill, set a time, go away, try and improve, go back to that, set a time, right, have I improved? What's changed? What was easier? What was harder? And it just gives you some some goals, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a great idea and one that everyone can do as well there. Yeah, it's a nice one. I've got some hills around behind me and I, I was trying to pick off some sections and it was really funny because I, it, it's, it's sort of one of those things on Strava. One of the guys was getting annoyed because I was taking his, his comms. <laughs> and then it, like the next week, he went out and took them all back again. I was like, oh, bloody <laughs> hell, this is crazy. I'm offending people here. I just, you know, it's. Uh, I think there must be some sort of... Uh, sort of social uh, etiquette with with things like Strava. I'm not I'm not quite up on it. <laughs> <laughs> you just want to improve yourself and meanwhile yeah, you're annoying exactly. everyone, like, everyone oh, who's ever ridden the trail. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. It's, um, no, it's, it, I think it all it all helps, doesn't it? And you want yeah you know, I think amateur athletes, one of the problems is you can get into a rut. You can do exactly the same thing, the same weights. Yeah, the same, same ride. Yeah, the same ride, the same intensity, and you and you you can become a bit disillusioned because you're not breaking through that glass ceiling. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's some brilliant tips there. I think it'd be nice to finish off. So I put a uh, post into the Facebook group earlier, into the MTB Fitness Facebook group earlier. Basically, I told them that you were coming on, uh, and I asked for some questions. So I've not rid of them yet, so we'll both right, okay. the first time. Oh, you go. Right, there's okay. three questions in there that people have put Perfect. in the last 20 minutes. Uh, the first one, you actually answered it earlier, but you can reiterate it if you want. Uh, this comes from Lorian Gordon. Other than talent and skill, from a training perspective, what separates a pro athlete from a very fit bike rider? Well, there you go. I think... Um... The, the two things that I see, one is their sort of mental approach. 
in terms of their ability to deliver when it counts. And the second thing is if you ask a professional athlete to do an exercise on Monday morning, an exercise on Wednesday morning, an exercise on Friday morning, he will do it. Okay. Yeah. There won't be an excuse. There won't be a, I struggled because I had to drop my daughter off at school. There won't be, I had to doctor's appointment. There won't be, I couldn't start my car. They'll be there. Okay. Yeah. Um, an amateur athlete, there may well be a reason why they can't do that. And I completely understand life gets in the way, but honestly, that is the biggest thing. One of my pro athletes on Saturday, he texted me last Saturday. He's like, oh, my van's broken down. I've had a massive problem with the brake caliper, blah, blah, blah. I'm just not going to make it on Monday. I, I just don't know how I can do it. And I was like, don't worry, that's fine. Get it fixed. See how you get on. Sunday night, mate, I fixed it. I've clamped off the rear brake caliper. So I've only got three <laughs> brake calipers, but I'll be there. And the guy was 10, 10 minutes early. Do you know what I mean? What can you say? Yeah. That is that is professional athlete approach. They know they, they, they're fully accountable and they also keep me accountable. If they don't feel something's working, they'll yeah. tell me. An amateur might go away and grumble about it. Well, I don't know if that's working, but he won't ever say anything to me. Okay. And so, you know, that I think those are the key points in, from what I see in, in all my years doing this, a professional athlete, very accountable. Um, they will stick to something and they will make you accountable as well. Yeah. I think that's a great answer. And second question, you, we've kind of touched on it uh, from Stephen Colfard. He says, what exercise in terms of weightlifting is a must do for all mountain bikers? Um, I, I, put this up, I put this up a couple of weeks ago, actually. And it was quite funny because most people were like, yeah, great. And a couple of people were like, why? And questioning it. But in my opinion, if you haven't got very much time in the gym, now, let's assume that you've mobilized, you've warmed up, you've assessed that you can actually move properly. I yeah. think a deadlift is a beautiful exercise to do. If you can do a deadlift well, it hits a lot of good things in a lot of the right ways. I'm not saying yeah. deadlift super heavy and I'm not saying let it get ugly. But in terms of a compound movement, I'd say that's the gold standard. Um, hex bar deadlift, really easy to do. Um, I would say a compound movement, essentially. So whether it be a lunge, whether it be a squat, whether it be a deadlift, some form of movement that is not isolating a muscle group yeah um and not on a machine so yeah. i'm a big fan of squatting whether it be a front squat or a back squat i actually really like front squats because they're really hard and really really tax the trunk yeah um i really like deadlifting um if i've got an athlete that's not got great ankle mobility if i've got an athlete who hasn't got great um sort of t-spine extension or doesn't have a great hinge pattern i'll get them into a hex bar which is a bar that you stand in the middle of some people call it a trap bar yeah um if they have got good movement patterns i'll give them a barbell and i will monitor their technique rigorously but i'll add load until the technique starts to become challenged and then work as a percentage of that yeah so that. yeah so i i would i would suggest for that question he looks at a lunge pattern any form of lunge pattern because it actually mimics the the sort of your posture on the bike and also often if you haven't done a unilateral exercise so one leg working on its yeah. own or in isolation you'll find that you may hide a weakness or may hide an imbalance so mm. a lunge pattern a squat pattern a deadlift pattern i think those things uh, are very useful to build robustness and posture 
Yeah, yeah, great answer. Um, and he's actually answered a follow-up. I, I replied to his comment saying squat, deadlift, step up, bench rest, overall. <laughs> Very go. similar answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Compound movements. Yeah. Um, he's put a follow-up to me. Uh, he said, are you quite simple? Well, you might not be a simple one. Are there any common weaknesses you see in MTB athletes? I on yourself there in that imbalance from side to side with your legs or your arms or whatever but are there any other uh, common weaknesses you see in athletes yeah I, um if someone cycles a lot and they don't do a lot else uh, apart from sitting at a desk or driving a car they're often they're often really tight in the sort of anterior hips so hip flexor becomes really mm. tight they often got quite rounded back and they don't know how to pull their shoulder blades back and down yeah. so they're quite anterior dominant so that's one thing that i do see quite a lot and that anterior dominance can cause shoulder pain, cause lower back pain, um, affect movement patterns, and is a very weak position to be in. It's actually really weak on the bike. And if you to watch an amateur riding a technical section, you'll see they're almost hunched over their bike. And, yeah. and they don't know how to stand tall on the bike and keep their chest up. So those, um, in terms of mobility, hip flexor stretching is a real must. Um, whether you raise your rear foot behind you and sort of... Uh, uh, they call it a couch stretch knee to the base of the couch foot on the top of the couch and lunge yourself forward um, whether it be a spider-man position so you're sort of in a press up and you you reach one foot to the so say left foot to the outside of the left hand and yeah. you drop your hips towards the floor anything to open up around the hips um, and also in terms of your your ability to maintain a nice healthy neutral spine um, and that's where it's squatting pattern comes in that's where an overhead movement comes in so those are quite common problems i see um, with people great answer and now the final one i know you need to get off there uh, in yeah, one oh, minute yeah, <laughs> um, richard verdon asks what are the best and i would add in if any so what are the best if any cross training sports for mountain biking um so in the winter i think rock climbing is really cool because it's a gym session in itself. It's loads of fun, really upper body dominant. Uh, it's really good for your movement pattern. If you think about where you have to put your legs and your arms and your, you keep your trunk engaged throughout the whole lot to that. I think rock climbing is brilliant. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that uh, motorcycle sports are really, really good because all of a sudden you've gone from riding a very light bike to a very heavy bike that's got a lot more inertia. Um, in terms of line choice, you can also, if you're riding motocross, you get to ride the same corner maybe 30 times in 30 minutes. Yeah. So you can really, you know, try and perfect that technique. Um, in the winter, it can be hit and miss in the UK. But I, I think trials riding as well, in terms of line choice, in terms of balance, in terms of control. I, I love motorcycle trials as well. Um, I, I quite like the fact that pump track are coming on i don't know if you call that a cross training exercise or just another okay. cycle sport but yeah. pump, pump tracks and bmx um they're a really good workout they're really fun and i think that previously when i was growing up i lived really near to um fun and bmx track and that was a national level bmx track and the problem was it was it was so big the jumps were mass i must have broken three bottom brackets and two sets of cranks oh, okay. trying to clear one of the doubles you know <laughs> it was just a cut it was really it was either do or die yeah. and I found that um, growing up, it was quite a baptism of fire to learn to jump and learn to manual and learn to pump a bike. But with the way that pump tracks are coming on nowadays, I think they're a really good thing. Some of them are floodlit even. They've got a really nice surface that's pretty much all weather. And yeah. you can really learn 
learn what the bike does, learn to corner, learn to stay off the brakes. And I think that uh, during the week, or if you've not got long, then that's the, that to me, that's a go-to. And if you've got kids, I'll tell you what, I t- I've got a five-year-old daughter and we go to the pump track and I can do whatever I want to do. She can do what she wants to do. You know, I'm a good husband there. <laughs> so, you know, it's quite a lot of fun in that respect. <laughs> I think that's a wicked way to end. Perfect. Um, <laughs> so um, where would you like to send people? I'm sure they'll want to follow you. So Facebook, Instagram, your website, where's best for people to come and learn more about you? I'd say that um, in terms of what I, uh, when I share sort of socially, I try and have some form of education into it. So if you want to, to sort of see what I do, see some of the things I like to do, see some of the athletes I work with, go to Instagram. I'm at Alan Milway on Instagram. Um, I'm not so good at updating my Facebook, but I've got a Facebook page that I do engage with. And that's, I think, Alan Milway Coach um, on Facebook. And those are probably the two best platforms. Those will take you, those will give you my information. And um, if you want to, con- if anyone's got any questions or they want to follow up with anything, I'm more than happy to help if I can. Um, so, you know, just drop me a message on either of those two platforms and I'll be sure to get back to people. Great. That's great. And what I'll do for everybody listening, I will also link those up in the description to the podcast as well. So if you forget those or if you just want to go and click them, I'll pop the links into the description and it'll be all over Facebook and Instagram as well. I really appreciate that. Sound. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Alan. Is there any uh, sort of parting thoughts you'd like to leave with everyone? Oh, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) A pearl of wisdom. I keep dropping bombs on you today, don't I? (laughs) (laughs) I think in all honesty, if you're enjoying what you do, um you can see there's progression to what you're doing you'll you'll get better at it and it really is as simple as that so um if you're doing something you're not enjoying it probably reflect on it probably think you know is there a better way to be going about this um and maybe change up some things if you're always riding at the same place Mm. you know consider traveling outside of where you normally go riding try and find some new trails because to me that really does reinvigorate things and when you come back to your sort of stomping ground you've got a new perspective on things and and probably a little bit better too yeah i totally agree great tips i think there's been loads throughout today so uh thanks so much for taking the time to come on i know i appreciate it and i'm sure everyone will uh enjoyed listening to it and appreciate it too so thanks so much alan it's been good thanks matt Till next time cheers buddy all the best mate see you later bye-bye bye Hey podcast and welcome back. I hope you really, really enjoyed that episode. I absolutely love talking to Alan. Uh, like I say, he just gives away all his information for free and he's just really, really passionate about helping people out and helping riders from pro level right down to your everyday rider get better. So I know that'll have shone through. It really did for me. Um, if you want to check out Alan's Instagram and his Facebook, like I said in the at the end of that interview, the links will be in the description. So do just check those out. If you want to learn more about MTB Fitness as well, remember to head over to www.mtb.fitness and the one thing I would absolutely love you to do if you can take 10 seconds is just to leave a really quick review of this podcast in the podcast app you're using or if you're on Apple just in the in iTunes or on the podcast app because what that does is it helps push it through the rankings and make more mountain bikers like you find the podcast so if you do get a chance please subscribe and please leave a review as well that would really mean a lot to me so yeah check out the description for all the links over to Alan's Facebook and Instagram account and until next week I will see you then thanks so much bye bye